HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome barbecue expert and chef Aaron Franklin and author Jordan McKay. In this episode, we'll talk to Aaron and Jordan about steak, their recent book, Franklin Steak, and we'll get a double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia definitely appreciated a good steak. She famously said, the only time to eat diet food is while you're waiting for the steak to cook. She also really valued expertise, appreciating people eager to share their knowledge. And as an advocate of lifelong learning, her natural curiosity meant she also had a love for getting a deep understanding about ingredients. Ingredients like beef. Two gentlemen with equal reverence for curiosity and learning are Aaron Franklin and Jordan McKay. Their most recent book, Franklin Steak, is the answer to the question, what's everything you need to know about steak? Lo and behold, you can't discuss steak without understanding its various cuts, what makes for good beef, where good beef comes from, and newsflash, steak comes from cows, so you have to know your cattle too. Aaron is an award-winning chef, often referred to as the king of Texas barbecue. His eponymous restaurant, Franklin Barbecue, is in Austin, Texas. His Franklin Steak co-author, Jordan McKay, is also a multi-award winning writer based in Napa Valley, California. Having collaborated on Franklin Barbecue, a manifesto on smoking meat, they discovered a shared passion for steak and naturally decided to write a book about it. They join us today with some revelations about what makes a great steak 
and how not to destroy it on the grill this summer. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron and Jordan. Thank you. Hello, hello. So let, let's start at the beginning. Aaron, how did you get into barbecue? Were you, were you born meat obsessed? Uh, no, maybe. Um, I think the first <laughs> thing about me uh, getting into barbecue is the fact that I'm a Texan. And I couldn't help that, you know. But uh, I definitely uh, had a thing for barbecue from a young age. My parents owned a barbecue restaurant and kind of set into nostalgia for later on in life. But um, yeah, it just kind of seemed like a lot of fun. And so tell folks who might not be familiar with Franklin Barbecue what it's all about and what you got known for and, and sort of how that happened. Um, Franklin Barbecue opened in December of 2009. And it's been something that my wife Stacey and I have been working on for a while. Uh, probably leading up to that, I bet maybe about six or seven years worth of backyard barbecues and big summertime barbecues and stuff. And, uh, you know, we had eventually bought a little trailer, fixed it up in the backyard, opened it up one day, and people started showing up, and we started making more cookers and making more meat. And then uh, March of 2011, we moved into the building that we're currently in. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. A lot, of pe- a lot of people show up, I guess. So was it really a very organic brick-by-brick brick or step-by-step thing, rather than, like, when you were 11, you wrote a business plan for a barbecue restaurant? Uh, no, no business plans. Um, big fan of just kind of doing it yourself. I mean, we built everything, built the cookers, built the trailer. We did all the work at the restaurant. Um, I'm still kind of a lot of times the maintenance guy. Um, but yeah, just kind of a big fan of just making stuff happen the way you want. And it was very gradual, of course. It's still pretty gradual. We've been evolving since the beginning. Did you guys feel, did you have a certain vision that made you like feel like you had to kind of build the systems and things you have from scratch rather than buying something off the shelf? Or is that really true for almost every pitmaster? It's a kind of either custom built or jerry rigged operation. Um, I think a lot of people tend to buy stuff these days. I'm a really big fan of not looking at the instructions. Um, I like to build everything (laughs) myself, I like to have no outside influence. Um, I'm still that way. I've always been that way, even as a kid. Um, but, you know, really, you know, it was really intentional on not letting other things influence me. Like, I wanted it to come from from the heart and be something that I created. Um, and also, to have it be a little bit original, uh, which is pretty hard to do in barbecue, especially these things. Um, but, yeah, yeah, we just kind of built the thing, as you say, one brick at a time. So, Jordan, um, I'm now uh, imagining what it might have been like to uh, ha- working with someone who likes to reinvent the wheel. So was it working on Franklin Barbecue, uh, that book that got you into meat, or was that something that you were already into and passionate about when you and Aaron first met? Well, yeah, I was, um, I was very interested in cooking and meat my whole life, but I had left uh, – I grew up in Austin, actually – before Aaron uh, sort of had his rise. And I moved to San Francisco where I started a career as a wine writer. And I'd been writing mostly about wine before I met Aaron. But I had from afar developed a big interest in barbecue 
as a way of sort of connecting myself to my home in Austin. And I had gone back and done some writing uh, for some publications about Central Texas barbecue, which got me in touch with Aaron shortly after he had opened his restaurant. And so everything kind of came together. He was looking for an author for his book. I was cutting my chops, no pun intended, writing about barbecue. And it was great for both of us because I was able to make a transition into doing something outside of wine that I really loved. And I think that both our attention to process and to technique and to all of these things really fit together to make that a successful book. So in this book, it's a really comprehensive uh, piece. It doesn't feel like a tome, but it really is kind of a soup to nuts primer on not not just steak, but really beef and where it comes from and what you should know about it. And I thought one of the things we're going into, you know, we're, well, we're in the, in the middle of it, if you will, or going into the high season of summer grilling and summer barbecue. But I think that a lot of people throw the terms barbecue and grilling around quite um, interchangeably. And I thought it would be really useful for Aaron as the expert who who's now done books on both with Jordan. Aaron, can you kind of break down to remind people what's, what are the key differences between when you're saying you're cooking barbecue or you're barbecuing and cooking steaks? Um, that's kind of a, of a tricky thing, and, and there is a lot of debate on that. Um, you know, for me, it depends on if you're referring to barbecue herb. Um, like, I'm going to go barbecue outside, we're going to have a barbecue or whatever. Um, but really, down here in Texas, if you split off the meats into barbecue versus, like, steaks or grilling or, or whatever, um, you know, barbecue is typically a slower cook. Uh, really, I think the common thread is that you're cooking up live fire. Uh, it could be charcoal, could be wood coals, could be whatever you're burning. Hopefully not a, you know, pine two by fours from Home Depot. But, um, you know, the the barbecue tends to be a slower cook. It could be something like a whole hog over coals. It could be brisket on an offset cooker. Uh, but definitely when you refer to grilling steaks, I think there's no mistake about it. You're definitely grilling steaks. Which is right, a much faster process on a higher, more direct heat, or, or not necessarily? Absolutely. Um, and it really depends on how you're cooking those steaks. And that, that's a lot of stuff that Jordan and I cover in the book. Um, it could be a huge piece of, you know, a giant steak, like a big tomahawk or something, or a tri-tip. Um, and maybe you're going to reverse the air. You might uh, cook over fire real slow and then cool it down and then pick it back up on a grill. Or it could just be a smaller steak like a bivet or a hanger or maybe like a filet mignon or something like that that you would cook really hot and fast. I see. Uh, Jordan, did you did you want to add anything to that uh, from, from your point of view? Yeah, I would just add that I think Aaron would say that in Texas, or at least in Central Texas, the term barbecue refers to basically the slow cooking of meat with smoke. And cooking a steak is grilling, which is different, and that's directly over high heat coals or wood and uh, cooking directly. So that's the major difference. I think that that really helpful. I just wanted to sort of set the scene. And I think in the second half, we'll dive in a little bit more to your 
uh, discoveries and guidance in the book. In, in the meantime, Jordan, could you also, I was really curious that, you know, it's been four years since Franklin Barbecue came out, and I imagine you guys started on it a few years before that, and now the publication of Franklin Steak. And do you think a lot has changed in the world of meat in America, or is what was going on four years ago kind of still holding today um, with the release of Franklin Steak? Oh, it's a really good question. And I think a lot has changed and is in the process of changing. And since Franklin Barbecue, I think there's more and more emphasis on what is quality meat. There's more awareness about where meat comes from, its impact on the world, and what constitutes well-raised um, and flavorful and even nutritious beef. I would give a nod to Aaron in this that one of his primary qualities since he started was serving the best beef that he could buy, which, as we know, is not a real focus of many, many barbecue places in Texas. And partially that is why we uh, really devote a good part of the book to talking about what makes great beef, because you just simply can't have a good steak without great beef. And then given my background too, and the fact that I live in California now and just the emphasis on great ingredients here, I'm always interested in how do you find the best product? So as we move forward this year, we're seeing, you know, more and more emphasis of chefs around the country on dry aging beef, which affects its flavor and tenderness. There's more and more interest in cattle of different breeds, of different ages. People are paying attention to the feed more. Is it grass-fed or grain-finished, and what's it finished on? I think there's a bigger and bigger market for high-end steaks that I see growing. So, so really, it's the beef world is a, one of the most dynamic in all of meat right now. Excellent. Well, that's really interesting because that's such a short time frame. And I was just curious if you guys close to the subject were really feeling that in that same way. Aaron, did you want to weigh in on that? Um, I totally agree with everything that Jordan said. Um, yeah, I think people really are paying a lot more attention in general to kind of what they're eating. I mean, and not just for meat, just, you know, kind of everything in general, like, you know, organic produce and you know, there's better places to shop. There's more opportunities to order stuff online. Uh, but really, the quality of beef over the last, you know, more than four years, really, um, is exponentially increased. It, I think it's really awesome that you can get some, some pretty great stuff out there, and you're not just kind of stuck eating whatever you can find at the supermarket. I would just add uh, um, that it it has changed a lot in four years. But also, I think that we were sort of tied into this zeitgeist, you know, four or five years ago as it was starting to happen. And it was the vision of seeing what was coming that also was an encouragement that Steak, Franklin Steak would be a successful book. And also, it just really can't emphasize enough how important it was that Aaron was serving a much higher grade and expensive 
uh, cut uh, a beef at his restaurant way before anyone else was. It's just, it's important as to his success. I think it's a part of that, but also what he cares about. Well, that's actually what I was going to ask Aaron about, because it's interesting to me because, uh, and full disclosure, I'm a Kansas Cityan, just so you know my biases. Um, sorry. Um, but, you know, to me, traditionally, barbecue, in some ways, some of its value was that you could make inferior cuts of meat taste a lot better, or what was perceived as inferior. So it's interesting to me that as a barbecue guy, you really value, you know, the the, the raw material. But I was interested in how you're feeling, because I imagine, especially growing up in Austin, you would have experienced pre-Franklin barbecue. What are some of the ways that... Um, with barbecue that that using the best raw materials comes out in, in the final product? Um, like how, how using a higher quality beef changes the, the finished product. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, exactly. I mean, because some, a lot of people think of barbecue is the flavors in the cooking or the sauce. And actually the cut of meat is the whole process is, is in, to some degree, designed to make meat that maybe isn't as great or is not a steak that you eat in a more quick and, and close to its original form. And But do you think that really you found in your work that using the, the this better meat to begin with makes a huge difference in the end product, even though so much is done to the, the meat in the process? Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at kind of old-style barbecue and the kind of stuff that I grew up eating and, and Jordan as well, you know, it was kind of like a real weird, smoky brisket, and the fat wasn't very good, and the meat itself was really, really lean. It didn't have a lot of flavor and stuff. And, um, you know, that, at that point, the, the flavors were more subcutaneous. They kind of laid on top. The fat wasn't rendered and stuff. But then if you start to pick apart those details and you get better beefy flavor out of the beef, you get maybe a muscle that can absorb flavors a little bit better, um, you know, you can, they'll take on salt better, they'll take on smoke better, uh, the fat will render and have a juicier cut, things will get tender the way they should. Um, for me, once I started to pick apart those details, of like, well, why, how can this get better, how can this get better, how can we cook this slower, how can we develop flavors in different ways, uh, once you get to that, one of the many details involved are um using a higher quality meat. I mean, it's like if you pick apart the details, it's a better wood, it's a better airflow, it's a, you know, maybe a certain pepper that gets aged and ground a certain way. Um, but beef is certainly a good foundation for good barbecue and good steaks. Um, you know, kind of like Jordan said, it's really hard to make something truly amazing when you don't start off with something amazing. Uh, Aaron, that was interesting what he said, and it's really true, but you're not wrong Barbecue is the art of transforming cuts that are difficult to cook or difficult to eat if cooked quickly Absolutely. into something delicious. Um, but still, a lower quality of beef will make a lower quality of barbecue. And if you start with a higher quality, it will uh, cook better. But it doesn't mean that you're like a brisket is any easier to eat from a prime graded cow than from a choice, you know? 
Yeah, no, I was thinking about, well, A, I was thinking about the the Franklin barbecue being known for its lines, but it's that elevation of sort of, I think, every level of barbecue that you've been working on and continuing to refine and uh, perfect that you're, you're, you're kind of looking at all these small elements that lead up to, to something much bigger. Is it, do you think that's a good encapsulation of what you were saying here? The lines are there for a reason. Oh, the line, the lines. Sorry. I was thinking about the lines in the meat. You're talking about the lines at the restaurant. Yes. So I would be remiss because we're kind of covering all aspects of of the food world on this podcast. And I think it's the, this funny dichotomy that we're getting this like rise on one side in in plant based um, interest and, and and exploration. But we're also getting this rise that I think is almost feels almost equal in the world of, of ethical rearing of animals and sustainability. And so I and. I, I don't think this is like a particularly sensitive question because like you guys cover this in the book, but I wanted to ask you to kind of uh, speak to it. So Aaron, Aaron tell, tell us your view and how you approach the sort of ethics of eating animals and how raising cattle in particular does or does not contribute to climate change. Well, I mean, it, it's no, uh, no secret that raising animals, uh, you know, does contrib- contribute to climate change. Uh, not a huge percentage. I mean, I think like creating energy is like 30% of, you know, carbon emissions or whatever. Um, but I think it goes back to the kind of original question of like, you know, know where your meat comes from. And once you get into more ethical consumerism, that puts you into smaller ranches and, and farms um, that maybe don't have as obviously as big of a footprint. But I think it's really the food system that, that affects that stuff. It's these giant feedlots. Um, it's the fact that as Americans, we consume so much meat. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's good meat or, or ethically raised or sustainable or anything. Um, but I think, you know, something that Jordan and I feel very strongly about is eat less meat, but better quality meat. And I think if, if everybody kind of did that, you know, the, uh, kind of like our carbon footprint would definitely change on that stuff. Jordan, did you want to uh, piggyback on that? Yeah, I, I think it's a very perceptive question, and it's actually something that's driving a lot of my current thought and research, even since the publication of this book. I agree there's two equal and opposite movements happening in this country right now, and one is the plant-based, and then there's this crazy offshoot of this carnivore people who are only eating meat. I think Aaron and I definitely stand somewhere in the middle because we love both meat and vegetables. But but there is an amazing lack of consensus right now in how human beings get their nutrition. And I personally do lean on the, the need for ruminant animals in this planet. And we discussed this in the state book about their importance in the ecosystem, especially in agriculture, of creating soil. Um, And Aaron was right on about the carbon emissions that that this this huge emphasis on the beef industry of creating emissions is sort of misplaced, considering it is dwarfed exponentially by what is produced in in, uh, power creation, automobiles, 
and even in the food world, food waste creates a much bigger um, uh, climate footprint than beef. So, so I think a lot of that is misplaced. But I do think also, as Aaron said, that if you eat less beef but pay a little more for beef that's been humanely raised, is fed well, taken care of, and is full of nutrients, then we can all have a good balance and a delicious life. Yeah, I think that was that was an, a good summary that I think Julia would have said uh, here, here too. All right, we're <laughs> going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Aaron and Jordan more about their top state tips and about Franklin Steak, the book. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry, some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Welcome back. We're talking to the king of Texas barbecue, Aaron Franklin, an award-winning food writer, Jordan McKay, about their new book, Franklin Steak. So, Aaron, I was saying at the beginning of the show, Franklin Steak is really a very comprehensive book, and it's kind of, it's certainly not like a regular cookbook. So, like, do you think of it as a cookbook, or do you think of it more like of a reference or how-to book? Um, I think it's definitely a reference book. I mean, really... Something that Jordan and I wanted to do on the first book is we kind of wanted it to be like uh, Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking, like one of those books that's always in the kitchen, always sitting by the smoker. You just kind of reference over and over, and it's kind of like, you know, old faithful. Um, and that's kind of what we wanted for the steak book as well. I know that when I get a cookbook and, you know, and I have a ton of them, but I just kind of flip through them once, put them back on the shelf, and I never really go back and look at them. I don't cook from recipes. Um, and you know, how to make a good steak or how to cook a steak or how to make good barbecue isn't necessarily something that you can um, It's mostly about the craft and the feel and just the intuition. So I think that's where the, uh, the reference for this book comes in with a couple little recipes for like pies and, and sauces and stuff like that. But really, for the most part, if you could read through a book and actually learn stuff and not have to follow a black and white recipe, I, I think that's kind of what we're going for. So a reference book. Okay, Jordan. Yeah, I would agree with Aaron. 
but it's not like a full-on reference book. It's like a philosophy book. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's like, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, but it's not exactly a cookbook, and that we don't focus on incredible little details. It's really about the big picture. It's really about technique. It's about believing that the foundation of good cooking starts with feel, with knowledge and understanding. And if you have a good grasp of your product and your tools and where you want to go, that, that you can get to where you, where, get to where you want to go. And so this book is supposed to, it's like build your muscles, you know? No, I, I mean, I very much endorse that. I think it's one of these great books where you sit down with it, you learn a lot from it, and then you can kind of put it aside and then you can do your own thing in applying all these different things you, you've you learned from it, both in terms of understanding how beef is raised or should be raised best, how to shop for it, and different ways you can approach it from more like a technique side um, to cook it. So I think it's a really impressive work. Yeah, we're both real geeks for technique, you know. That's Franklin Barbecue with the same thing. Aaron's art is technique, not recipes. Well, and I think we love that also Aaron, Aaron's view is he he's found all this stuff out for himself, but then said, heck, I, I need to have other people understand this. And rather than just keeping it is to his own little secret. That's right. So the the book is neatly divided, and, and this is sort of how it's set up. It's not stated this way, but basically, like, it's the first part is sourcing steak, the second is preparing it, and the third is cooking it. So let's start. Jordan, what would you say your top tips are on how to source good steak? Yeah, that's a great question. I am still working on that. <laughs> um, I think it definitely starts with finding a good butcher shop in your town or your area not buying stuff that's pre-wrapped in plastic in the grocery store and finding butchers who have connections to to farms and um, really seriously care about that. The butchers that we talk in the book, they're called Salt and Time in Austin. They have relationships with all these local farms and they go out and visit the farms and, you know, know everything there is to know about the meat. Not every town's going to have that, but they're, that's a good start. And then now I'm also finding more and more really good mail order companies too. So, so it takes a little work to source good beef, but it's worth it. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm very tempted to plug Heritage Foods, which is the the predecessor company to this radio network. Is is I I think would agree with you, um, Aaron. What are your top tips once you've figured out how to source at least the best uh, beef that you can for where you live? What are your top tips on cooking it? Well, so I think you know if you if you're at a good grocery store or you're at the butcher shop, uh, being able to look and look at the fibers and look at the fat. Um, I think it's helpful to kind of know sort of, and of course we'll get to this, but I think it's helpful to know when you're shopping for meat how you kind of want to cook it, but not really being nailed down. Like you don't go to the store and be like, I have to get salmon. You know, you kind of go and see what's fresh or see what's available. Uh, but the same thing with steaks. Like you don't go in 
they're like, I have to get a big ribeye, like no matter what it looks like. Because um, sometimes you might go to the store and be like, oh, well, that, that little steak looks pretty nice. What is that? Um, so I think it's good to have kind of a general idea of what you want when you go to the store or you go to the butcher shop. But also to be flexible enough to be like, well, this piece obviously looks a lot better than this one. Um, and being able to kind of identify those things, uh, which but, um, you know, you pick up a steak and then with that plan, you kind of just cook it in a number of different ways. And one, maybe is it easier for you to take one cut as an example of the kind of best way to, uh, to cook it? Well, there are a lot of different ways to cook a steak. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to do everything. Um, you know, obviously you wouldn't cook a, a three-pound tomahawk ribeye, you know, that's like super fatty and got a lot of marbling uh, the same way that you necessarily would a filet in a skillet. Um, so I think kind of knowing as you're picking up steaks or this one's well marbled and it's a lean or, you know, it's a leaner marbled cut or it's a hanger or if it's a bavette or if it's a thick piece or, you know, maybe like a blade steak or something like that, kind of knowing how to cook those things. Um, and what we kind of did in the book is we tried to put out like, say, five different pieces of meat and five different ways to cook those pieces of meat. So you can kind of pick and choose. It's a little bit of choose your own adventure. Uh, for example, if you had a super lean filet mignon, everybody kind of knocks on filets. It's not having much flavor and being kind of a lame piece of meat. But the trade-off is tenderness. You get something that's really got a beautiful texture to it. So that might be a good thing to cook in a skillet with a little bit of butter. Uh, to kind of replace that fat. Um, it's obviously going to be something you can't overcook. You need to be really careful with, with how you prepare it. Um, on the other hand, a three-pound ribeye with a giant bone hanging off of it, um, you probably wouldn't necessarily put that on ice cold in a skillet inside. It might be something that you might salt beforehand. You might temper it on the counter for a while. You might uh, slow cook it. That would be a good option for a reverse here. Uh, to kind of have a different technique, um, you know, in the pocket for kind of random pieces of meat. Be like, oh, well, I could do this like this, or I could cook this like this. Um, I don't think there's any, like, hard, best way to cook anything other than applying heat and not overcooking it. And I, I liked what you said about grill marks. So uh, what do you think? Uh, should we be concerned about grill marks? I mean, I always try to get them just for fun to make it look like an 80s uh, TV show, <laughs> but really, it, it doesn't matter much to me. <laughs> Jordan, did you want to weigh in on the value of the Mallard reaction? Well, yeah, it's, um, you know, Aaron, it's funny that on that because he likes all things retro. Um, you know, we're <laughs> living in a post Grillmark world now where. The, <laughs> The approach that I take, and I think that a lot of people do now, is that the grill mark is the most delicious part of the steak. That's where the Maillard has really taken place the most, and you have a layering of flavors and a huge cascading of complex flavors in that part that's caramelized. So why would you constrict all of that to just a few stripes on the piece of a meat when a really great steak, the entire outside will be a grill mark. 
And and is that why, Aaron, we should care about understanding, well, or maybe it's the only takeaway we need to understand about the Mallard reaction, which is it cre- it ultimately creates a lot of good flavor? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that goes into uh, how to cook different steaks. I mean, some steaks you might want to put them on a cast iron so you could get mired across the whole thing. Um, and it just kind of... You always kind of want the balance of, like, Maillard reaction and the caramelization of, you know, all these flavors and stuff versus what flavors you might get from charcoal or from a natural wood fire or from smoke, which I don't really like too much smoky stuff on my steaks because uh, much more delicate piece of meat. Um, but always finding that balance. If you have a steak that doesn't have a lot of flavor, you might be better off trying to get more Maillard on the exterior of the steaks for more flavors. Or if it's something... Yeah, that does have more natural flavor, like more fat and stuff like that. It might be something that's a good option for just like straight on wood coals. Um, yeah, there's no doubt there's, there's a lot of flavor in there. It just depends on what balance you want of that flavor. Got it. So, and also, you, uh, I think it might have been Jordan who brought this up, but Aaron, I was going to ask you, I still have trouble getting my head around dry aging, probably because I don't spend enough time like you guys with beef but what why does dry aging matter or what do you think we should know about it because you i have this instinct that like well isn't fresh better um well there's a lot of a lot of change that goes through on a on an animal post-mortem um anything you get in the grocery store is going to be at least 30 something days old um but in the in the bag, that's called wet aging, which is kind of silly because um, it just happens naturally. But there's right when an animal is harvested, the meat doesn't actually have a whole lot of flavor. It doesn't necessarily take on flavors. Um, you can salt it, but it's not going to get. It's not going to be complex in any way. Uh, but the more aging that goes by, enzymes break down, and so forth. Um, you kind of get more flavors out of it. But then, if you really want to take it a step further. Uh, you can do some dry aging, and you know, obviously, not all dry aging is is equal. A lot of times, you could get something that's thirty day, twenty eight day dry aged, um, and it doesn't really do anything. It really has a lot to do with the environment and the certain bacteria that's in there and certain flavors. Um, but really, as the meat kind of the moisture evaporates out of the meat, the flavors become more concentrated. The tenderness changes. Um, the flavor of the fat changes. The flavor of the meat changes. Uh, can get some pretty pretty incredible flavors out of that stuff. Got it. Jordan, did you want to weigh in on dry aging? Yeah. You know, as I mentioned earlier, its primary function is to tenderize meat, and that happens after the first two weeks. After that, we get some complexifying of flavor as the microbes break down the meat. And so I think it's really important to have aged meat, especially on tougher cattle that might be say like grass fed a little bit, but also it just that little bit of funky flavor that might come in after three or four weeks is really delicious. I think it's, it's, technically like the essence of umami and we're programmed to enjoy that within limits 
And and what's what's the limit by which you don't don't want meat sitting around? Like, where does it cross a very fine threshold, or it really depends on how it's refrigerated or cared for in that time? Well, no, it really has a lot to do with uh with how it's been aged. I mean, and that's kind of where like not all dry aging is is created equal. Uh, some dry aging people call it that, and it's just really it's kind of refrigerated with a fan, no big deal. But what in some uh settings in some climates you would have certain uh certain bacteria certain molds kind of same as aging teas in a cave um but you would have a certain moisture content certain temperatures and you really like you know like doing charcuterie and all that kind of stuff you want to pinpoint what molds you want and then you create an environment to let certain molds thrive but to kill off other ones um and you could have a a steak or a carcass aged for like a year, uh, it would be super duper delicious, but yet you might have one that was aged three months that might not be nearly as good. I mean, it really comes into the climate control uh, that happened. And also having a lot of other meats. You can't just put one piece of meat in a refrigerator and have it really do its thing. A lot of times it has to have other meats around or, you know, you really have to like work hard on that environment. And that's why for people that are really good at, at dry aging, they have, just hundreds and hundreds of pieces of meat hanging up, and they're all rotating in and out. They're all tied and stuff, uh, moving around, controlling the airflow and the humidity. Um, but yeah, there's kind of kind of a lot to it. Yeah, Jordan, and I would just add that it's an imprecise science. When I was working on the book with Aaron, I found basically every scientific paper that's been written about the science of meat aging from the beef scientific research world. And there wasn't much. And while the mechanism of what is happening in the flesh is understood, the actual nuances and how to control it and exactly how it impacts flavor is not really understood. And so there's a lot to be done in that it's kind of a dark art and those who are really good at it definitely have a leg up on everyone else. But they couldn't exactly tell you why they're so good at it. Okay. So I feel better that of, of not actually feeling like I understand it that well. It is something that is complicated, but it also, am I right? It relies on refrigeration though. Like if you go back well before refrigeration was invented, was the, was there really much dry aging or you would end up with rotten meat? Jordan? Uh, I think you would end up with rotten mm. meat. Yeah, I agree with Aaron. <laughs> but that's where barbecue comes in and smoking, mm-hmm. of course, is a preservative. Yep. But before it and comes I mean, the, uh, there is a great tradi- tradition of hanging all kinds of meat going back to the Middle Ages and I'm sure much earlier. And we mentioned a detail that I got from Harold McGee's book while we were researching this is that the French would eat meat that had been hung for a long time and to the point of basically being rotten. And it was a delicacy at a certain point. So. And the other end of the spectrum at Steak Tartare. All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. L- listeners, let us know, are you passionate about steak? 
And what are your favorite cuts and cooking methods? Are you not a steak fan? Let us know what you love to grill or cook this summer. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at joyachildfoundation.org. After the break, Aaron and Jordan are going to reveal their double Julia moment. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she might have inspired them in their career. All right, Aaron, your turn. What's your Julia moment? I grew up, of course, watching Julia Child on TV. Um, and it, you know, of course, I was too young to really cook, but then once I got into barbecue later on, I was able to kind of look back on that. And one thing that I really loved about her was that it was okay to make a mistake. Like, it wasn't, it was never too polished or anything. Um, and kind of going on and, like, the the barbecue show on PBS and a bunch of other stuff that I've done, and even just, you know, running a restaurant and stuff. Like, it's totally okay to experiment and make mistakes um, and actually learn from those things. I think that's, like just pretty much the coolest thing. Because these days you look on TV and everything's perfect and it shouldn't be perfect and it's not really perfect. Cool. Jordan, uh, what's your Julia moment? Before I mention that, I would like to also mention that Julia is mentioned in our book, Franklin Steak. And that is in the recipe header for our recipe for garlicky sautéed mushrooms, which is something that I talk about. I picked up from my mom and I asked her where she picked it up and she said probably from her mom and my grandmother was a big Julia Child fan. So so we traced that recipe all the way back to Julia Child even though ours is kind of different. So anyway, my moment is though that I got to meet Julia Child and actually attended this really fancy dinner for her 90th birthday in San Francisco at a restaurant called The Fifth Floor. And that was an incredible dinner. I couldn't 
understand at all why I had been invited, <laughs> except for that I was local media. And anyway, at the end of it, I hadn't gotten a chance to talk to Julia. You know, there were 50 or 60 people there. They gave us a great printed menu with a mother of pearl caviar spoon attached. But at the end, I said, you know, this may be the only chance I ever get. So I went up to Julia and I told her how I always remembered her being on the kitchen television of my grandmother and had indirected, indirectly influenced me in so many ways. So that was a beautiful moment. And she signed my menu. <laughs> and did she say anything or is she just nodded? Oh, she just said, glad to hear it. You know, thank you very much. for Move along. I think <laughs> next <laughs> it was at the very end of the day. <laughs> well, what a, what a great way to bring it full circle with the, this book and the garlicky mushrooms, which everyone can uh, get the book, pick out their favorite cut and make some garlic mushrooms to go with it in honor of summer barbecue and grilling season. Thanks so much for having us on. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks both for being here and uh, talking all things steak. It was a really interesting conversation. I appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Find out what we're up to this summer by checking us out on social media. Search at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm T at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-N on Twitter. The book is Franklin Steak by Aaron Franklin and Jordan McKay, with photographs by Wyatt McSpadden, illustrations by Brian B. Butler, published in 2019 by Ten Speeds Press. To learn more about Aaron Franklin and Franklin Barbecue, the handle is at FranklinBBQ on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jordan McKay's handle is at the real Jordan McKay, M-A-C-K-A-Y on Instagram, and it's at J-O-R-G-R-A-M-A on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The Front Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. And if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, all the better. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back in the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.